Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today we're joined by Sandra Fox, who's currently the Jim Joseph Postdoctoral Fellow at Stanford University. She's also the host and producer of the podcast Vibratech, a Yiddish-language feminist podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Sandy about her podcast and the development of contemporary Yiddish culture and its history. Specifically, we'll look at the ties between her work in Yiddish-language podcasting and her research on Jewish camping. Sandy recently published an article in American Jewish History on these issues of post-Holocaust Yiddish culture titled Laboratories of Yiddishkeit, Post-War American Jewish Summer Camps and the Transformation of Yiddishism, which we'll be talking about, and I'll share a link in the show notes too. You can check out Vibratech online at Vibratech, that's V-A-Y-B-E-R-T-A-Y-T-S-H dot com. Her episodes are in Yiddish, but she also has transcripts, and every once in a while also an episode in English. It's a fabulous and unique project, and I hope you'll check it out. Before we begin, I just want to thank you for listening. And if you want to share this episode, you can share the URL jewishhistory.fm slash yiddishpodcast, where there's also a transcript and links to Vibratech and other topics that we talked about today. Hi, Sandy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny talking about a podcast on a podcast. Yeah. But there's a lot to talk about, I think. Definitely. Uh, you know, I think for people who aren't familiar with Vibratech, it's a really fascinating project and a really exciting one, I think. You know, a feminist podcast in Yiddish, right? There's so much to think about and, and talk about there. Do you maybe want to start us off by telling us a bit about the project, how you started the podcast, and what you've wanted to do with it? Yeah. Uh, you know, like, who is the audience that you want to reach? What do you want them to get out of it when they listen to it? Sure. Um, I guess I'll start with with how the idea occurred to me and, and sort of the beginnings. Um, I started learning Yiddish in summer 2013 at Yiddish Farm, which, for those who don't know, is a Yiddish-speaking farm in upstate New York where they hold summer and winter programs for students. But also there are people who live there and lead Yiddish-speaking lives while farming organically and making shmura matzah and other things. So I started learning Yiddish there at first just for graduate school exams. Uh, did not think I was going to particularly fall for the language, um, but my friend was running the farm and he said, you know, it'll be great. It'll be just like camp, which, you know, we'll get to it. But I also I study <laughs> camp. I went to camp. I thought, OK, that sounds better than an academic Yiddish program. Why not? I surprised myself by really enjoying learning Yiddish and feeling very connected to the language. Um, I grew up in a Zionist youth movement. Hebrew culture was a big part of my youth. But at that time, I was starting to have more complicated feelings about that upbringing and about Israel. Uh, so that probably played into it. But in general, I really just fell for the music and the and the literature. And I also really loved the, the Yiddish-speaking community. So I think the seeds were planted for some kind of Yiddish-speaking project very early on. I really love radio um, and podcasts, and I'm fairly tech savvy. So I think podcasting seems kind of an obvious direction. Um, as soon as you speak Yiddish well enough to do any sort of cultural, I guess, production, 
people from different generations, the older generations will come up to you, oh, write for the Forverts, write for Affenschwell, write for this journal, write for this. And I thought, I do a lot of writing as a graduate student back then, now postdoc. I don't really want to write for my side project. Um, mm -hmm. And so I thought that a podcast was a really exciting new form of media for the Yiddish world, because um, when you're learning Yiddish, unlike other languages, you don't have sort of a giant treasure trove of audio or video to look at. You know, if you're learning Hebrew, you're learning French, you can go on YouTube and watch videos, you can listen to radio. But with Yiddish, you you have certain limitations in terms of contemporary right. stuff. Um, so I felt there was a need for something people could listen to. I learned a lot of my Hebrew through just listening to radio and music. And I also, um, I had identified as a feminist from a very early age, probably in middle school even, mm -hmm. um, when I was exposed to the Riot Girl music movement, which is a sort of offshoot of punk, um, a feminist uh, music movement. But in graduate school, it became more clear to me what exactly it's like to be a woman in many fields. Um, and I think I had sort of a feminist awakening that was more tachless, more mm -hmm. actual of, um, okay, this is why this movement exists. At the same time, a lot of the people I was learning Yiddish from, the people who sort of, I don't know, were the gatekeepers to the Yiddish world were mostly male. If we did have recordings of Yiddish, it usually came from male voices from, you know, decades ago. And I just, I didn't really see a lot of examples to to gather how women speak or spoke right. Yiddish. And so it was very clear to me. I never really debated having a different kind of Yiddish podcast. It was clear that it had to be a podcast that was about something that wasn't Yiddish, mm -hmm. you know, in Yiddish, rather than a podcast about Yiddish and Yiddish. Um, and I don't think I ever debated that it would be feminist because all of this was totally interwoven for me. Right. So one thing that really, I think, comes to mind, um, just listening to you talk about the project, has to do with the performativity of Yiddish. And what I mean by that is my sense when I think about the state of Yiddish in the 21st century and just in general in the post-Holocaust era, is that this is a language that, for the most part, has lost its native habitat. So what's really exciting about this whole kind of project is that you're helping to create the spaces where Yiddish can be spoken and listened to. Uh, you know, like you talk about Yiddish farm, for instance, right? You know, I know Naftali Edelman mm -hmm. uh, from like, ages ago. Now we went to college together. You know, that's a kind of a similar kind of a project in as much as they're creating a, a space for Yiddish yeah. uh, or a, a certain kind of Yiddish. So, And I think Vibratech was in some ways in an, a reaction to a little bit of a, um, a challenging situation there in terms of gender, mm -hmm. um, in terms of gender balance, in terms of um, you know, it's really interesting to live on a farm and think about the way labor gets divided and what labors are more uh, appreciated. So in a way, it came out of it from that angle. And it also is very directly related to the same sort of vision of of Yiddish culture and Yiddishism mm -hmm. that um, that Yiddish farm continues to propel forward. Right. Do you maybe want to say something briefly about the audience? Who are you reaching? Who are you trying to reach with the podcast? What do you want them to get out of it? It's funny because Yiddishists tend to be the first to say, hey, there are a lot of us and and we're not a dying community, which I'm also, I, I also tend to say that. But I, I still had very low expectations when I started the podcast. I kind of thought to myself, if a hundred people listen, 
this will be worth it to me. I didn't really think it would reach people outside of my immediate Yiddish circle. But I've been really, really happy that it's been well-received around the world. So we have something about 6,000 or 7,000 listeners per month, most of whom are under 40 and um, across about 15 countries, mm-hmm. um, mainly the United States, a little bit. You know, the other countries that are sort of major are Israel, Canada, Australia, a good amount in France, a good amount in Latin America. So, yeah, and I think, first of all, it, it is, you know, about 50 percent people or maybe even more. I haven't checked in a long time and the analytics aren't perfect, but it's about 50 or 60 percent people under 40. Um, but we also get an older generation that wants to reconnect to Yiddish that hasn't heard Yiddish since their childhood. And we also get a fair amount of Hasidim listening, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, the reception has been really surprising, and it's really interesting because I thought of it as sort of an intimate audience at first, and uh, the podcast got really personal in the first season in a way that had I known how big it was going to be, I might not have let it, but I'm kind of glad that that's how it worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it undermines some of the assumptions that people have about Yiddish mm-hmm. and about the Yiddish-speaking community, right? You say it's primarily younger people. That might also just reflect uh, who listens to podcasts, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Definitely. There's, I think, a common misperception of kind of Yiddish as a dying language. Yeah, and let's be clear. They don't necessarily all have to speak Yiddish. Right. They can just understand it. You know, so many of us who are listening probably took academic Yiddish programs. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of Jewish studies people end up in that. They don't necessarily speak, but understanding they can do. Or I have a lot of German listeners who don't actively speak Yiddish, but are interested and can understand. So mm-hmm. it's a mix. But but let's assume most of them have more understanding and ability to speak Yiddish then. Well, right, right. But um, I mean, I just think that it, it um, helps us to rethink the state of Yiddish in 2019 a little Absolutely. bit. It's one of these things that everyone just accepts as true, even though according to, I think, UNESCO, which tracks dying languages, it's not by any means a dying language. It doesn't meet any of the markers for what one would even call endangered, I believe. I'm pretty sure that it's actually growing because of the Hasidic community. People often disregard Hasidic Yiddish or Hasidim in general as having a culture um, right. whatsoever. Kind of like, oh, well, the Hasidim speak it, but that doesn't matter. Why doesn't that matter? That's lots of people. Right. So when you say Hasidim, can we break that down a bit? Obviously, there are lots of different kinds of Hasidim, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really reflect also all ultra-Orthodox Jews, right? Sure. So when you say that, are you thinking mostly about the ultra-Orthodox community in New York or in Israel? Or and the reason why I ask is just because when we think about the way in which we can break down some of our preconceived notions, one of the things that is known to be true, but is, of course, much more complicated than, than the myth is, is this idea that the ultra-Orthodox are disconnected mm-hmm. from contemporary society. And the technology is something that, you know, the internet in particular is something that they avoid or they've been told to avoid by their religious leaders. And then, of course, we know that people are on the internet. Yes. And so listening to the podcast in a way reflects their engagement also with our contemporary technological world. Right. So, I mean, you probably know, but podcast analytics aren't perfect. It's hard right. to know exactly where they are, um, exactly who's Hasidic. If I see Brooklyn, that could be me. Mm-hmm. That could be a friend of mine or that could be a Hasid in Borough Park. Uh, who's to say? So I can't know how many are listening precisely or where they are. I just know I've gotten personal emails, usually anonymous from Hasidim, asking to broach different topics or reaching out that they like the show. We don't understand yet the diversity of Hasidim. Um, There's a lot of breaking them down into 
Hasidim and ex-Hasidim. But there are a lot of people who are on sort of the fringes or who are still part of the Hasidic community, but at home live very different lives. Obviously, smartphones have a lot to do with that. I've just noticed that there's a pretty interesting community of kind of these fringe Hasidim who are still part of the community, but but also have one foot out on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I think the reason they're on Instagram, and this might be the same reason why they listen to podcasts, is because you don't need a computer. You just need a phone. Mm-hmm. And you think maybe the phones are less policed in a way. They're more personal. They, they, they can't be as policed, right? You can hide a phone. So a lot more of them have smartphones. And mm-hmm. then they'll have, sometimes Hasidim will have, you know, kosher phones. And then that's sort of the dummy phone when they actually have WhatsApp. And so this is all stuff that, you know, it's evolving and people haven't exactly studied it. So we don't have the sort of numbers that I'd love to have. But it is very exciting to me that for Hasidim who who are interested in engaging in the secular world or at least a broader realm of thought that that the podcast gets to be part of that, especially for men who do not necessarily speak uh, wonderful English. Right. So that's the that's a little bit of an ironic twist because right. I do have female Hasidic listeners, I'm sure, but I mostly get messages from men. Right. Which is like a whole other interesting element when you think about restrictions on women's voices mm-hmm. uh, within the Orthodox world. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I mean, I think that we can talk about, broadly speaking, the question of women's voices in a whole range of spheres. When we look at the podcast as a feminist podcast that tries to bring forward and foreground women's voices, you know, I think we could even just look on the website um, where I went online and it said that one of the goals is, and I'll just quote, it says, to highlight the stories and works of women and queer folk and to discuss feminist issues. This seems to me that there are two really critical elements here that go back to this question of women's voices, which is that in general, the medium of radio, if we look at its history, um, has been dominated by men. And this is also true of podcasting. This is uh, one of the challenges, um, I think, across the board uh, that we see. Like if you look at like the top 100 podcasts or whatever, like 80 of them or something are hosted by men. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that. And then another thing just has to do with when we think about the history of uh, the so-called gender of Yiddish. There's all sorts of interesting issues here when we talk about Yiddish and we talk about radio and women's voices. So I think that that's something we could think about a little bit. Yeah. um, I think, I guess I'll just start with a personal story that happened to me not too long Mm -hmm. ago. I was giving a talk at the Center for Jewish History, and I um, I was just setting up, I guess. And uh, a man in the audience came up to me and he said, hey, are you the speaker today? I said, yes, I am. I'm Sandy. Nice to meet you. He said, um, I was just wondering, are you going to be saying like a lot? Because I really hate when people say like a lot. And I was livid. I mean, I was really, really, really angry because the, the fact is that women in all sorts of worlds and fields, our voices are denigrated. They're not treated with respect. The way we speak is is picked apart as if men don't say like, as if men don't use things like vocal fry. They do. Yeah. So for me to make a podcast that that centered women's voices and combat the sort of stereotypes that women's voices are irritating or non-authoritative, and specifically that, you know, I'm a millennial as much as I don't love that word, uh, millennial women, our voices are constantly critiqued. So it has a lot to do with that. In particular, speaking in a second or third language is is really hard for everyone. But I noticed that in the Yiddish world, a lot of women were quieter than men because they'd say, oh, I'm not ready to 
to perform or to record or to do whatever in Yiddish until I'm fluent. But I just didn't see that same kind of timid attitude among my my male friends who were learning Yiddish. So kind of saying, you know what, we're here, we speak Yiddish. Uh, it's never going to be perfect, uh, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, so sort of eschewing this sort of perfectionism that comes out of women being so critiqued mm-hmm. whenever they say anything, um, whether it's vocal fry or the word like, which are all things that men do too. You know, there's studies that show that the way women speak eventually become the popular way to speak for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes, this discrimination also comes for women as well. It can be generational. It can be in the same generation. But the point is, I think for me, it was personally empowering to say, okay, my Yiddish isn't perfect, but I'm going to get in front of the microphone and I'm going to create something anyway, because I definitely also fall victim to a sort of idea of perfectionism that is unachievable. Mm-hmm. I just don't see my male, my male friends going through. It's kind of like when you're teaching a class and you notice that women speak less often. It usually comes out of an impulse to not open one's mouth until one is 100% sure that they know what they're saying. So I kind of want to create a world in which women could just speak without worrying about all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. You're kind of connecting the project to a whole range of issues about uh, women's voices, right? And so this is one of the ways where you're saying it was kind of obvious to create a feminist podcast. In a certain way, you know, it was going to be feminist no matter what you were going to do, just in terms of the format and and the framing. But I mean, I think that part of what's going on here as well that's so important, and I feel like we've talked about this, not on the podcast, yeah. um, but it's something that I think people are are talking about and trying to engage with you know, more and more in a way that's self-critical and um, trying to be better about it is that I think it's it's important to be including some of these feminist issues and women's voices uh, in our society at large in podcasting as a medium, right? Where, as I mentioned, this is actually like a, a major problem and something that I also notice uh, whenever I have had like multiple guests on a podcast uh, and one of them is a man mm-hmm. and one of them is a woman and then we have the conversation and then I go to edit it you know, or I go to listen to it. And I realize the male guest just talks twice as much as yeah. the female guest. Right. So there's that. Uh, and then, of course, you know, if you look even at like the first season of this podcast, you know, astute listeners will notice that there were like two episodes yeah. out of 10 or whatever that had female guests on the on the podcast. And so this is something that I've been working on as well, of trying right. to to sort of shift the gender balance on this particular podcast. But um, this is just a long way of saying that I think this question of whose voices are being heard and who's being given a platform uh, is really important in our society at large and also in academia in general. So I think that this is really important. Yeah. And I can't I can't overemphasize how empowering it has been for me, even when I'm just alone in my apartment in my pajamas recording Vibratite to just to put my voice out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's almost therapeutic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also good practice, right? It's good to use a language. So absolutely. It was it was there was a little bit of a practical element about that, too, that mm-hmm. I was like I, I was leaving New York for a while. So I was leaving my Yiddishist enclave of, of Prospect Heights, Crown Heights, Brooklyn to be in Israel, where my partner's from for the last couple of years of writing and for my first postdoc Um so how was I going to keep up my Yiddish? And Vibertite really has helped with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one other thing to think about here to sort of think a little bit more 
about the question of gender is about this relationship between language and gender. You know, there are a lot of people who've been writing about diglossic societies, mm-hmm. right? Societies where people speak more than one language, uh, like code switching and and so on and so forth. And in these contexts, often different languages are relegated or reserved for different kind of environments or situations, and thus to different genders. You know, so it's fascinating to me in a certain way, um, just based off of my own study of the history of Yiddish and the history of language in general, to have a feminist podcast in Yiddish. It seems kind of so obvious to tie in so well um, with so much of what people like Naomi Seibin, uh, for instance, have written about the discourse about Yiddish in the 19th century and the debates about sort of the mama lushin, right? The 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 mother tongue, literally, right. um, you know, as a kind of a feminine language uh, versus Hebrew, which people tried to, at least in terms of the, the Zionist movement, the the polemic against Yiddish tried to articulate Hebrew as a masculine language. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, there's a certain kind of um, polemic and flattening to this discourse that we need to unpack. And that's what that whole literature and you know, that whole scholarship is really about. You know, because it's really the Zionists who are talking about Yiddish in this way. But it's actually not just the Zionists, because even the the movement of Yiddishism, you know, I guess starting with the turn of its conference um, officially, in a lot of ways, raising the status of Yiddish and raising it as uh, as legitimate and not a, jar- a, a jargon. Right. That's also asserting it as sort of a male language. Mm-hmm. There was an inherent, you know, understanding of, of Yiddish as... It had been understood as vibratish, which is like vibratish. The name comes from from the the concept of vibratish, which was kind of um, translations of Jewish texts for women or vibratish menner, feminine feminine men who could not read lashon kodesh. So inherent in Yiddishism in the in the early twentieth century was this idea of turning the mama lashon into something legitimate inherently that meant male. Mm-hmm. So it's not just Zionists. I mean, there's obviously a relationship there, but even within Yiddish circles, you know, Yiddish writers of the time right. period, kind of how do we give legitimacy to Yiddish so it's not just a language for women. Right. Um, and that the impulse to make Yiddish legitimate still exists among uh, Yiddishists today. And many of the most passionate Yiddishists, I would say, the most strict about it, let's say, are men. Mm-hmm. So there, there is still, there's actually stuff happening a hundred years later that have to do with with the idea of Yiddish as, as male, that right. male equals legitimate, not right. a jargon, not a vibratish sprach. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess part of what I was trying to, to, to sort yeah. of think about there was, you know, do you think, in what ways do you think about the podcast and about its place within 21st century uh, Yiddish culture and Yiddishism you know, in relationship to this question of of gender and how it's been historically utilized, uh, like as you said, as a marker of authority, like to, to code one language as one gender and one language mm-hmm. as another, uh, and how that shifts and, and changes over time. I think it's just really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people who are very passionate about Yiddish today are women or part of the queer community. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be a big overlap there. So we're not only talking about gender in terms of male and female, but also a wider spectrum of gender and of sexuality. Um, there's sort of an idea emerging that Hebrew is the hetero language and Yiddish is the sort of queer language of of the Jews. So I think the reason you were kind of saying before, it seems obvious that there'd be that it'd be a feminist podcast in Yiddish. Like there's something 
there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's because there is already such an audience or um, community of Yiddish speakers who would identify as feminist or queer. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know how to answer this question. It's very complicated. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess one way to think about it is, you know, do you situate it within a wider, a broader historical context? I mean, uh, it's weird. I mean, I'm a historian, but I don't think about my my podcast through an, a historian's eyes. Mm-hmm. I think if I did, I would just go crazy. I mean, I really, I really have to keep some separation somehow. Right. Um, maybe I'll be able to do it when I'm older and I'm further away from it. But you know, I don't think about the history of Yiddish radio when I'm making Vibratech. I really don't. I think about Terry Gross and Fresh Air. I think about the history of feminist radio in the right. 60s and 70s. It's really, it's really funny. But I just don't think about it. I mean, it's definitely there. Like the the Yiddishism aspect is is 100 there. Mm-hmm. But in terms of thinking about it in the through the lens of Yiddish cultural history. I'd be lying if I said that that's what I think about. I really think about the contemporary Yiddishist community and what we need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where my head is at when I'm doing this. When I'm at, when I'm doing historical projects, my head is in, is in the past. But I think that's what people like about Vibratech. I mean, I get feedback that this feels fresh. It feels modern. It feels relevant. It doesn't feel like I'm constantly hearkening back to a nostalgic vision of a Yiddish-speaking past. I'm trying right. to create a Yiddish-speaking now. Right. I mean, I'm not implying that yeah. you are right. you know, trying to get back to, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. to some to some golden age of Yiddish. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's interesting that you say that there's not really a connection between no. your scholarly work and, 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 the, and the podcast, because, you know, it seems to me, especially after, you know, reading through and talking to you about some of your work, that there is a connection in terms of your interest in, like you said, the, the post-war mm-hmm. Yiddish culture as part of your work on Jewish camp. Totally. No, there is a connection, but I just don't historicize Vibratech because, you know, they come out of the, my work comes out of a similar passion or interest, but I also, I do feel like I have to keep them in separate quarters sometimes mm-hmm. of my brain and of my heart. Cause there's just a different relationship between a scholar who's studying Yiddish culture and someone producing Yiddishist content or right. Yiddishist culture. Right. You know, in my in my article uh, in American Jewish History about two Yiddish summer camps, Boybrick and Hemshech, uh, in the years after the war and the decades after the war, um, I do make this connection between the sort of reconstitution of Yiddishism that occurs at those camps from a national linguistic movement into a pathway towards what they would consider to be kind of authentic Jewishness mm-hmm. in the post-war period. What I what I argue in part in the conclusion is that while those camps closed at the end of the 1970s, the pattern they created, the way in which they they reconstituted Yiddishism is very much related to the sort of Yiddishist projects that we see today, which, of course, does include things like my own podcast. So there's obviously a connection there. But I do think if I if I look at my personal life or my sort of this project from that perspective I don't know if I'd be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. And we could talk a lot about that article, yeah. um, which I found to be so fascinating and a really exciting sort of look at camps and also at, at Yiddish culture. You mentioned this question of authenticity, you know, which I'm going to put in quotes. We all put it in quotes. Just presumed at this point. Well, no, but it, it, you yeah. can't see it when no, it's on a podcast, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 
know, you, you've written about how for the, the kids who are at these camps, they have a feeling that there's a kind of authenticity through language. Um, and even in the name of one of them, which is Hamshech, mm-hmm. and which literally means continuity, uh, you know, in both Hebrew and in Yiddish. So it's remarkable because, I um, mean, this also ties into some of the things that I think about a lot in my own research. It's this question of how people, how Jewish people in the aftermath of the Holocaust tried to cope with the chasm and the destruction that had been wrought, and that people were trying to bridge this gap uh, mm-hmm. that was created with the destruction of European Jewry. But at the same time, when when you look at what is happening in this particular context that, that you're writing about in terms of these Yiddish camps uh, and American Jewry, is that this is also a way in which they're transforming the meaning of Yiddish and its mm-hmm. place in American society. So I guess, you know, when you're thinking about sort of this genealogy or this 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 history of the development of Yiddish in the post-Holocaust era, you say that 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 you don't really think about your project within this this broader context, right? Um, but like, what is the importance of continuity uh, with the past when we're ta- when when we're talking about the history of Yiddish in the post-war era and also in present moment in the 21st century? I, I guess one way to think about it is, you know, for these kids, you know, like you said, that they they felt that there's a continuity by speaking Yiddish. It's even more so that the adults mm-hmm. felt that way. Yeah, well, I wouldn't necessarily the kid, say the kids always did. But you, I mean, you had some, some quotes. No, huh? there are some quotes, for right. sure. But you never know. With, you know, I work on history of childhood stuff. I, my perspective on Jewish studies is usually from a history of youth perspective. You never know if an adult prompted them to write it. So you have to always have this sort of critical eye. Right. But, you know, you hear from alumni that they felt that way. But that's also through the lens of memory. So, but yes, let's say participants, broadly speaking, different ages had some feeling that what they were doing contributed to their so-called authenticity. Mm -hmm. So your question is? Well, I I guess the the question is, um, when you look at this history, right, and the way in which continuity and authenticity as concepts come up within that particular context, do you think that it speaks in some way to a search for continuity that the Yiddish language represented for them you know, and do you think that this is no longer the case, you know, when we're talking about, you know, Yiddish culture in you know, our present day, as you were kind of describing before? I think that when I when I look at Jewish summer camping from a more broad perspective, the Yiddishist case makes a little bit more sense. So similar to how Zionist camps sort of sought to create Jews of a certain mold, right, that were... A camp, they were role-playing Jews from other times and places, whether that meant in the Zionist case, sort of pioneers or halutzim, quote-unquote, or in the Yiddishist case, sort of a nostalgic view of the past or the idea of sort of different heroes of, of Eastern European Jewish history. In a lot of ways, I don't necessarily see it just as continuity, but also trying to create something new in the post-war era that... that that they believed could transform a generation raised in affluent suburbs, by and large, into whatever they understood to be ideal, better, or you can say authentic Jews. How that connects today, I think that at this time in the sort of Yiddish-speaking community, what you see more is not adults, you know, at the top looking down at youth and thinking, okay, how do we transform them according to our ideals, our ideas of what real Jewishness looks like that either harkens back to the past or has something to do with, let's say, a Zionist future. But in the Yiddishist case today, it's rather young people largely who are coming into the Yiddish community because they're looking for a certain 
relationship with Jew- with Jewishness that they're not finding in mainstream Jewish uh, communities. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would go as far as to say that's continuity, because in a lot of ways they are creating something entirely new or bridging their contemporary identities and needs with whatever they want Yiddish to be for them. Mm-hmm. So one thing I get asked a lot is whether or not there's something inherently leftist about being into Yiddish, because mm-hmm. a lot of Yiddish young, especially young people, a lot of Yiddish speakers are um, left wing, perhaps anti-Zionist or at least ambivalent about Zionism. But I would say that that is a way in which they, uh, this generation is sort of fashioning Yiddish for their own personal and sort of, um, yeah, their personal need for identity, fulfillment, understanding of their own Jewishness. Right. Um, so it's not perhaps continuity of the past. It's rather kind of taking what they they envision the past was like and, and molding it to whatever their needs are. Right. So in that way, they're very similar to the post-war Yiddishists who are doing that in camp, taking Yiddishism and turning it into something different and useful, fashioning it into a tool towards whatever they believe to be an ideal identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, I think that in this generation, it's coming less from top down and more from bottom up, where it's more coming from youth. And that might be because as my as my work shows, my broader work that isn't about just the Yiddish camps, but about the Zionist camps, the denominational camps as well, um, there's this broader Israelification of, of American Jewish culture that in particular now is being brought into question by millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yiddish is a very convenient, I guess I would say, alternative path or replacement for an identity um, for many of us who grew up in in Jewish communities in the 90s and early 2000s that was extremely Israel-centric. Yeah. I mean, especially when you think about, again, the history of Yiddish, mm-hmm. right? The history of Yivo and of kind of this tradition of uh, diasporism yeah. that is connected with uh, that whole tradition. Definitely. And so you see Yiddish gaining a lot of popularity in a lot of left-wing organizations like Jews for Racial and Economic Justice or even in If Not Now to a degree because, you know, in a way those organizations are um, questioning not just Israelification, but also just sort of a one-side, a one-dimensional American Jewish culture. And so a lot of young Yiddishists are asking, was there more to the story than just, you know, the Holocaust or just Israel. And it's my hope that 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 conversation will also lead into broader awareness of other Jewish cultures and not just Yiddish culture, Ladino, Judeo-Arabic. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a whole series of these kinds of historical contexts that we can think about, about the development of Yiddish mm-hmm. in the post-war era. You know, like Jeffrey Chandler, for instance, has written pretty extensively about the idea of uh, post-vernacular Yiddish, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that, that, that Yiddish has become... A, a language that people engage with without speaking, mm-hmm. right? So obviously, I think here, your project and your interest in in sort of Yiddish, Yiddishism and the development of of sort of a more vernacular Yiddish culture, uh, obviously, is kind of in contrast with that whole way of thinking about Yiddish as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Chandler's work is is correct that there's a much larger segment of the community that's interacting with Yiddish from a post-vernacular perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a good way to relate that to my podcast is people will say, it's really in Yiddish. So you're saying I can't listen to it unless I speak Yiddish. No, you literally cannot listen to it unless you speak Yiddish. Like, it's not for everyone. Right. And that seems to really upset people. I mean, especially Americans who are just, you know, often completely overwhelmed by the idea of being fluent in a second language. 
So there is this post-vernacular element that Chandler, you know, correctly describes. But these sort of the Yiddishists I study and the and the contemporary ones who I interact with are in many ways fighting against that and saying it can remain a vernacular and and they're not particularly interested in the post-vernacular ways of engaging with it and actually can get rather offended by it, right? The whole idea that Yiddish is funny and you're going to put it on a t-shirt. So it's the exact kind of thing that makes Yiddishists really angry. <laughs> I think I think for good reason, right? Like in as much as uh, you know, it relegates it to a secondary or, 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 or a second status. Yeah, it's just demeaning. Or people will say, you know, I'll be on a, a different podcast. Let's say I was on an Orthodox Tablets show and they said, speak Yiddish for us, like it's dance monkey. I mean, what are you talking about? It's a language. So so it's obviously, it's it's both. Um, and I'm not saying that the, the group of people I study or engage with is particularly huge in number, right? But I think that by studying, one of the things I'm, I'm hoping to to show as I as I write my book and, and get it out there is that by looking at um, engagements with Yiddish culture alongside sort of more mainstream stories we know about in the post-war period, alongside Zionism, the rise of, you know, suburban Judaism and the dom- denominations, the intermarriage crisis, that it actually Yiddish can be a way of in, of sort of um, shedding light onto these broader trends. Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the themes that that comes up a lot when we're talking about, you know, why Jewish history matters is that a group that is small in number can be important. You don't have to have the numbers for it yeah. to be significant. And I think the same thing is true when we look at Yiddish. Even if, you know, there's only, you know, however many tens of thousands of people around the world who speak Yiddish, it doesn't mean that it's not an important subject or an important language. Right. And and you can tell that it, it sort of matters to people. I'm putting matters in quotes because I have, I don't know, it's, it's difficult to gauge what matters is or how much it matters to people. But Yiddish strikes a chord with, peop- with people. That's one thing that I've learned from doing Vibratech. I mean, it gets a lot of press. It gets a lot of attention. We have a lot of Instagram followers who don't speak Yiddish because people do care about Yiddish even if they don't speak it. Mm-hmm. So there, so the reverberations of the sort of Yiddishist projects that are occurring are greater than the number of people who participated in it or learned Yiddish. Right, right. I mean, I think one of the things that's also interesting, and it ties back into this article that you wrote, yeah. uh, is that there's a commonly understood narrative about the history of Yiddish, mm-hmm. you know, about the idea of Yiddish as a dying language and about the idea of Yiddish revival. And in, in some ways, I would say it's interesting. It kind of mirrors the way in which people, I'm talking about sort of regular people, they think about the revival of Hebrew. Like many people think about the the modern day revival of, of modern and Israeli Hebrew in the same terms of a quote unquote dead language that gets mm-hmm. quote unquote revived starting in the 1880s, more or less. Right. And of course, it's not really the way it was. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was never a dead language. Yeah. And the revival, it's complicated. Right. Um, but part of what, what you were talking about in the article, talking about Yiddish language camps, and also kind of more recent developments is that you were saying that what's been happening over the past, say, 20 years, for instance, is not really a revival in any particular sense. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that was my understanding of it, just that 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 you're kind of trying to, to to help us to rethink the entire history of the development of of Yiddish or, you know, over the past few generations. Uh, and in, in this context, the podcast also fits into a rethinking about the nature of, of Yiddish and its place in 21st century Jewish culture. Yeah, there was no it doesn't seem to me that there was any particular moment in which Yiddishist activism ended or that there was no kind of youth movement or activity that was going on um, that represented a certain a certain Yiddishist point of view. Um, I think when people are talking about revival, what they're really talking about 
is, I mean, first of all, there has been a klezmer revival, mm-hmm. but that should not necessarily be conflated with a Yiddish revival, um, although there's relationships between those two things. The changes, and, and this is something I, you know, that Sarah Rachel Schechter, who's the editor of the Farvert, says a lot, like Yiddish is, Yiddish is suddenly cool. I mean, I think that's what they they sort of mean by revivals. There's been a change in perspective about Yiddish um, from something nostalgic to something that a lot of young people in particular are finding really hip these mm-hmm. days. But I don't think that constitutes a revival. I don't know. A lot of the people who I would say would say they love Yiddish or think Yiddish is cool, they're not actually going out to learn it. They're also engaging with it post-vernacularly. So it's hard for me to look at it as a revival as much as there's been sort of this steady interest that is changing all the time, you know, that Yiddish is being used to fill gaps in people's personal experiences or their Judaism or help people make connections to their ancestors. It's always been, there's, it's been there. Um, It's just that now it's getting a lot of attention because somehow it's become cool and Mm -hmm. hip, um, which is, you know, it's interesting. And I don't think we're going to fully understand that as historians until we have some distance from it, which is why it's hard for me to historicize what I'm doing, because I think it's still just like it's this evolving story. Well, right. You're, you're part of it. I'm part of it. Yeah. And it's, it's changing all the time. Yeah. Even a couple of years ago, the kind of Yiddish community I was a part of was doing different things than it is now. It's just constantly changing. So. I mean, I think um, part of what interests me here, uh, and I feel like we've been kind of dancing around yeah. it a little bit, is is just that there are a lot of popular conceptions about Yiddish, mm-hmm. right? About its history, about its nature, about who speaks it, about where it's spoken, And so one of the things that we've kind of touched upon a little bit earlier is the way in which Yiddish is sort of seen as a language of the left Mm -hmm. on the one hand, and also as a language of the ultra-Orthodox. You know, one can even just think about representations of Yiddish in popular culture, just thinking about like uh, some kind of recent points of reference. Uh, There's the Israeli TV show Shtisol, Mm -hmm. right, which has kind of been blowing up, uh, at least on my social media feed. Uh, since it went on Netflix. And even like a couple of years ago, I think, um, there was an episode of High Maintenance, mm-hmm. right? You know, it was a show about the weed dealer. Yeah. Uh, you know. I interviewed two of the women in that episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, right. But there was the episode where there were Yiddish-speaking actors. Right. You know, and they were representing, they were playing the character of ultra-Orthodox Jews kind of on the fringes of that community. But they and they still... actually are that. Right. They were playing in a lot of ways their own stories. Yeah. Well, well right. But they, they exactly. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so but it's this representation of the ultra orthodox world or 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 its circle in the Yiddish language. So that's one thing, or, or I guess rather two things: language language of the left and the language of the present day ultra orthodox. But Yiddish is also kind of I think seen incorrectly by a lot of people as this kind of a throwback, yeah, as as a marker you know, that represents this kind of a pre modern. Jewish existence, right? You know, so I guess when we think about sort of these various ways in which Yiddish is is understood by a lot of people, and I think by some scholars too, how can we comprehend Yiddish, right? And its kind of place in sort of our present moment and those who speak and study it uh, in a different way from the ways in which it's popularly misunderstood, if I can put it that way. It's tough because I was talking to... um... Saul Zaret this morning exactly about how there aren't a lot of anthropologies, let's say, about Yiddish speakers, Hasidic or not. You know, there are linguistic studies and 
there's some stuff, but there's a lot we don't know about people who speak Yiddish today. I mean, it's definitely true that a lot of the people I do know who speak Yiddish happen to be either leftist or, yeah, they're, they're, they're leftist or they're Hasidic or formerly Hasidic. That's a huge part, of, especially of the young people. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you know, there are, we should not discount um, people from older generations who spoke it in the home or heard it in the home. There are Zionist Yiddish speakers. I mean, they're, they're just, there's a huge diversity, actually, especially when you're looking at it globally, right? You know, a lot of what we're talking about is about American Yiddishism because that's, you know, that's the context we're in and what I study. But um, when you look at Yiddish globally, there's completely different stories mm-hmm. um, to be told. I guess what I would point out about contemporary Yiddish culture today is just that there's an increasing dialogue between kind of these two groups that you wouldn't think would have anything to do with each other, which is the sort of leftist radical Jews that are interested in Yiddish and Hasidim. Mm-hmm. Um, not only do people listen to my show who are Hasidic, but I also interview a lot of people who are Hasidic. Um, and maybe it wouldn't be obvious or who who are formerly Hasidic, both. It might not be obvious to people that, that there are Hasidim who would want to be on a feminist podcast in Yiddish, but, you know, we're really, these worlds are actually colliding in some ways, particularly because of the internet, because of things like Instagram, Facebook. Um, and, you know, you could talk to Sora Rachel from the Forverts, where they have a lot of Hasidic readers. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I really don't know how to answer it. There's just, there are lots of different people who speak. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I guess part of what I, what I was just trying yeah. to think about here is like, you know, is there a way to to shift the way in which people think about Yiddish. I think that I think the way to do that is to make projects like Yiddish Farm and Vibratite and so many other projects that are going on right now. It's not about shifting the way people think about Yiddish because I'm really not overly concerned with that, mm-hmm. but about creating a contemporary culture that's not particularly nostalgic and is more forward-looking so that people will understand that Yiddish is moving forward and that there is contemporary culture to be listened to, to be read, etc. Um, like I said, I don't, like for me, I, just personally, I don't create Vibratite thinking about the people who don't speak Yiddish. Mm-hmm. And that might be, might seem strange. Is it a plus to me that some of those people might get inspired to learn Yiddish? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I guess I, I don't really, I don't get stuck on public perceptions of Yiddish really. Right. It's maybe it's just because it's too frustrating and I just have to answer a lot of ignorant questions about, oh, isn't it dead? Like all the time. I mean, it's really right. It's really all the time for anyone who speaks Yiddish. So I don't I don't get particularly caught up in how I change that perception. I think the perception is changing mm-hmm. because people are acting because people are are making. And I think that that's good. I think that I see a lot of press both in America and Israel about Yiddish culture today. And usually the questions not usually, but often the questions come from a pretty stereotypical place um, or the articles will start like Yiddish is a funny language and look at this young person who strangely has decided to learn it. I just saw an article like this from Ynet in Israel um, that my friend Roni Cohen was uh, interviewed for. And what he did was he held his own and explained it in his own words, even when the questions coming at him were coming from the sort of stereotypical place about Yiddish as dying and a silly um that's really all that can be done is that people who care about Yiddish will continue to create in Yiddish. And hopefully the way they communicate that to the world will change perceptions. But I don't know. 
Right. Well, I mean, one thing to think about here also is the role of technology. Yes. Uh, I think there's been some really interesting work recently on the way in which technologies embed assumptions, right? Whether we're talking about, you know, algorithms for Google search results, you know, or or whatever, you know, there's a, a growing consensus among people who think about technology that nothing is neutral. Uh, and the same thing can be said about languages within technology. It's very complicated to have a program handle Hebrew characters, for instance. Uh, you know, you've talked a little bit about how it's tough to edit a podcast in Yiddish because there's not a lot of professional audio editors who understand what they're listening to. Yeah, I mean, it's um, very hard to hire someone to do that. Well, exactly, right. Yeah. So I, I guess part of what I'm thinking about here is that when you think about the future of, of Yiddish, right, and about the role of technology in in, in enabling the, the future growth of a language and of a culture, where do you see the podcast fitting in? Where do you see sort of these broader issues with the internet and all of that sort of playing into this this question of, as you said, a forward-looking culture as opposed to a backwards-looking one? Um, I think it's already happening. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I brought up Instagram before. I mean, there's this kind of interesting underworld, Hasidic <laughs> kind of fringe underworld on Instagram that's happening with lots of Yiddish mixed into it that, you know, in previous generations, people who are interested in Yiddish would probably not have that kind of access to meeting these people who speak Yiddish um, from a completely different background. In terms of the podcast itself, you know, another good example, besides the fact that it's hard to hire someone to edit it is I don't, there's no transcription software. I can't just, you know, plug the audio into a software and let it create a transcript of the Yiddish for me. I still have to hire people to do that labor. Um, so we have a ways to go. And I know there are challenges in getting big companies like Google to support Yiddish, um, Yiddish characters or Yiddish projects. So like you, like you said, the, the Yiddish doesn't matter that much to some of these companies. Yeah, right? you know, the, it's not like a big enough market. Why would they care? I mean, I, I think it's, 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 I don't, I don't know if I want to get into it or not. I mean, I think one of the challenges that we have as scholars is making the case of what we do matters yeah. uh, because it's not going to make anybody a lot of money, right. To, to create a, you know, Google translate option for Yiddish. I think it's, it does it's, exist. It does exist. It's really bad. Yeah. Um, it might as well not exist. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad. Right. But I mean, um, sort of stepping away from the podcast though, do you think that there is work to be done? in terms of um, convincing people, whether we're talking about within the Jewish sphere or just in general, that Yiddish is something significant as a culture, as a language, as, as a society. I mean, because like you said, I think uh, like you're really focused on the Yiddish-speaking community, but again, sort of stepping away from that, do you yeah. think that, that there's a work to be done there in terms of you know, getting people, for instance, who are not Jews to want to take a Yiddish class at the university? You know, that or, already happens, which is really great. Well, it great. does happen, yeah. but you, know, you want more mm -hmm. in the same way that you want non-Jews to take Jewish studies classes or whatever. Yeah, I mean, sure. I definitely I definitely think that that case should be made. I, th I think for me, kind of linking it back to my research, which also overlaps with my broader kind of interests and background is, you know, I think a lot about youth culture and um, relationships between educators and youth. I happen to really think that that American Jewish education has been extremely one-dimensional in terms of how 
Jewish history is taught in terms of how Jewish culture is taught. So I wouldn't just say that Yiddish matters. I would just say that kind of the plurality of Jewish cultures really matter. Um, and that, you know, if the people who, you know, fund different program to, programs to save our generation from assimilation and intermarriage, we would really think about uh, what the failings were in our educations. I don't think... Um, Many of them would admit that that it's sort of one-dimensional Jewish education that's partly at fault. But I'm saying what I'm trying to say here is that what I'm trying to say is that uh, I, I definitely Yiddish matters to me. But what I'm more concerned about is that people find something that matters to them. Um, so I I have trouble just saying Yiddish matters. Like to me, all of these different Jewish cultural things matter. I don't place Yiddish above you know, Sephardic culture or Mizrahi culture. I just think it's great right. if, if in general we knew more about histories besides, you know, persecution and, and by we, I mean the public more so, but persecution, Holocaust, Israel, that's it. Right. I mean, I wasn't trying to imply that you were right. discounting the other Jewish cultures. No, of course I know. No, but I mean, I, I think it is interesting um, you know, in as much as there are kind of two hegemonic narratives mm -hmm. of Jewish history. I think that one can talk about the first one you kind of, the, the first one you just mentioned, right? Thinking about, especially in terms of the Jewish education in contemporary America uh, and the centrality of Israel uh, within which that. I, which I really track in my work. It's not even just contemporary. It's right, begun right. a long time ago. Well, no, I didn't mean. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. I think, uh, so there's, there's the centrality of Israel. Uh, and then there's also the centrality of Eastern European Jewry. And to some extent, the Eastern European Jewish cultural heritage has been, as you pointed out, uh, undermined by the hegemony of Israeli culture and of Hebrew culture um, as a result of the political developments of the past century. So there's that. And then there's, of course, you know, all those non-Ashkenazi Jewish cultures that just never get discussed in any case by anybody you know, outside a handful of scholars who are looking at North African Jewish culture or Jews in the what's now modern day Iraq, you know, so on and so forth. And so, I mean, I think part of what's interesting here is that we can talk a lot about why Jewish history matters as a whole, but also we need to think very deeply about under that umbrella, what gets the most attention and how we can draw more attention to the narratives and the groups of people who are, who are ignored, right? You know, outside of a small circle of scholars. Right. You know, Yiddish matters to me for all sorts of personal reasons that are probably not interesting to enumerate and probably not surprising to anyone about my background. Or, mm -hmm. But to me, what how Yiddish could matter in a broader sense is as an example of a treasure trove of history, literature and culture that, you know, most American Jews didn't have access to as they were learning about what being Jewish is or what Jewish history is. Mm -hmm. um, it's just one example. And I think, you know, as I'm teaching this semester, I have in a class of 16, six of them are of Sephardi or Mizrahi descent, and none of them in all of their Jewish educations ever learned about their own uh, family backgrounds. So the reason I care, right, I mean, besides the fact that I try to just, you know, be aware of systems of oppression, but I care about the fact that they don't know about their histories because I didn't know about my own. So the fact that Yiddish matters to me makes me care that they learn about their own histories. So there is sort of that's another reason I think, you know, Yiddish could sort of matter in this context. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, great. Yeah, well, thanks so much you yeah. know, for joining us. We're not going to have a Yiddish version of yeah. this. You know, I don't think we want to sit through this again. No. Um, uh, and also, for me, it's a real pleasure to speak in English on a microphone. <laughs> I'm much more, I don't know, clear. <laughs> but I, you know, but it's it's nice to speak Yiddish, too. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.